This is Mike Smith, and we jump right into today's show with the Vancouver-Quilchenna by-election debate. This is a key and critical by-election in our province. Voting day is Saturday, April 30th, which is one week from tomorrow. Advance voting starts today in the riding. There's a lot on the line here, and we have the two main candidates in the contest here for you now. I'm very grateful to both of them for agreeing to do this. Kevin Falcon is the new leader of the BC Liberal Party running for a seat to return to the BC legislature. Pleased to welcome him back, Kevin. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it a lot. Also on the line is the NDP candidate in the riding, Dr. Jeanette Ash. Jeanette is a political scientist and teacher. She's the NDP candidate, Vancouver Kulchena. Jeanette, thank you for doing this too. Great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Okay. I appreciate both of you doing this for us today. So here's the format that we've all agreed on here. I'm going to ask each candidate to do a short introductory statement here of one minute that I'll be timing. And then I will ask questions of each candidate, allow for rebuttal and interjection. We'll try and get as free for a free flowing a, a conversation as we can here. And I will try to keep it absolutely fair as possible here. So I have randomly chosen the speaking order here for the introductions. And Dr. Jeanette Ash, I'll ask you to go first. And you've got one minute here to make an opening statement. Go ahead. Great. Thank you. Yes, I'm Jeanette Ash, and I'm running for the BCNDP in Vancouver, Calchena. And I love this city. I know the last few years have been really tough on people, harder for some than for others. But British Columbians deserve a government that's working to make life better for everyone, not just those at the top. And that's what John Horgan and the BCNDP are doing. You know, I remember the last time Kevin Falcon and the BC Liberals were in power. It was scary, and it still scares me. They cut funding to health care and education. They increased costs for people with tolls on bridges and MSP premiums. Meanwhile, they gave tax breaks to the wealthiest people in British Columbia. We're still feeling the impact of these cuts today. I teach at Douglas College. My students tell me they struggle with finding affordable housing like so many people do. While the BC Liberals let the housing crisis spiral out of control, the BC NDP is taking action by turning empty properties into housing for people with a speculation and vacancy tax, building affordable housing with 32,000 homes complete or underway, and by capping the annual rent increase. There's a lot more work to do, but we can't turn back now. Okay, thank you for sticking to the time. Almost exactly one minute there. Appreciate that. Kevin Falcon, the leader of the Liberal Party. Kevin, your turn. Go ahead. Uh, hey, Mike. So look, I, I've served as a, formerly as a Minister of Finance, Minister of Health, Minister of Transportation, Deputy Premier, uh, and I've spent the last decade in the private sector also doing charity work on the Street to Home Foundation, working with homelessness in Vancouver and Canuck Place, the Children's Hospice, Lots of other things, too. But look, I left politics a decade ago for my two girls. They're very young. Today, they're 9 and 12. And I'm coming back for that generation. You know, for half a decade, the NDP promised to make life more affordable for British Columbians. If you look at any result in any metric, they failed spectacularly. Housing, highest in North America. Rent, highest in Canada. Gas, highest in North America. Groceries, everything is more expensive today than when the NDP took office. And while we're in the midst of an affordability crisis, the Premier and the Cabinet have given themselves tens of thousands of dollars of pay increases. That is not leadership. And I've said before, I don't think the NDP are bad people. I just don't think they know what the heck they're doing. And it's time that we get confidence and leadership back in government. 
That's why I'm running. And I look okay. forward to representing Vancouver, Colchena, and Victoria and holding the NDP to account. Okay, thank you for your opening statements. And now I'll begin asking both of you questions, and I'll, I'll allow both of you to have a rebuttal, and we can have some exchange here as well. So, Kevin Falcon, let me ask you the first question. And both of you kind of touched on affordability issues in your opening statements there. I've noticed that in your campaign, you say that the NDP has made life more unaffordable. Uh, are you suggesting that if you became the premier, you would what cut taxes? What's your plan? Uh, well, well, first of all, yes, they they've increased the taxes, twenty two new taxes in the five years they've been there. They now have some of the highest taxes uh, in North America. That's frankly not helpful. Um, we have a record. When we were in office, our first day, we reduced taxes twenty five percent to the top, the bottom two tax brackets. Uh, in our very first day in office, Mike, you'll recall that. Our whole philosophy is about trying to reduce costs on British Columbians, helping them create an environment that encourages investment, formation of capital, building of businesses, etc. Because we know that if we have a growing private sector economy, that will generate lots of revenue for government so we can do the kind of things that are important, like investing in healthcare and education, which, by the way, has never been cut. I can tell you, healthcare is more than double what it was when... uh, uh, when I so first you started would, in public life. So you would cut taxes again, would you? Which which taxes would you cut? No, I'm not going to be specific about something like that right now, Michael, because, you know, look, I've got to, I've got to recognize that after the NDP, they've been there for, you know, uh, half a decade now. Uh, they've already uh, dramatically ramped up spending, so that, which in itself is not a bad thing. But the problem is I'm not seeing the results next to it. So, you know, if you're going to bulk up the civil service, you're going to hire 112,000 new people into government, a 30% increase in civil service. I'd like to see at least a 30% improvement in services, but I haven't heard or seen that anywhere. Okay, Dr. Jeanette Ash, your thoughts. Right. Okay. Well, you know, Kevin, uh, we know your record. We know what you're about, and you're you're trying to make a comeback here. But I don't think you can fool British Columbians into forgetting last time you were in government, uh, you gave tax breaks to the top 1%, and you made everybody else pay for it. You increased MSP premiums. I remember that. That was tough. And you told Bridges. You took money from ICBC to fund tax breaks for the rich, and then you increased premiums on drivers. So we've been reducing costs for people. We've cancelled the BC Liberal tax cuts that you were part of for the wealthy. We gave it back to people. We've given the third ICBC rebate. We've lowered car insurance. The list is so long. And, you know, in terms of things like taxes, what you said is not true. Um, We have the speculation tax, which is great. People are saying very positive things about that because it's increasing uh, houses on the market. But people today are paying less provincial tax than in 2017. We cancelled your tax breaks that were given to the richest 1%. We gave it back to people with MSP uh, elimination, ICBC rebates. Um, And, you know, you said you're going to cancel the speculation speculation tax, and and that would just give cuts to the wealthy and would make everybody else pay again. So, um, So, yeah, so that's your record. Can I get a chance to respond? Okay, Kevin Falcon, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so look, I I think accurate facts are important when we have a discussion like this. The fact is, we did not give tax breaks to the top 1%. We did to the bottom two tax brackets. Uh, It's important that we get the facts right. Yes, you're right about uh, the fact that you took tolls off the Portman Bridge, but I'd like to hear uh, Jeanette confirm that they're not going to go ahead with road pricing, because I can tell you what the NDP are going to do. The other shoe's going to drop. They are going to put tolls on all the roads throughout the lower mainland. 
And if you think that's going to help affordability, folks, uh, you've got another thing coming. So I just think we have to be not fooled by uh, some of this talk as if they care about average folks, because average folks are taking it on the chin right now with high okay. fuel prices, high housing prices, high grocery prices, everything. Okay, I'll get, Jeanette, I'll give you an opportunity to briefly respond to that. Yeah, I, I mean, that's simply not true. The, the, the road taxes, no, I, I, I don't know where that's coming from, so that's not true at all. Uh, meanwhile, I mean, you know, Kevin, you put tolls on bridges, and you've, you've intimated that you would do that again. I mean, there's nothing that that I can see from your record or what you've said lately that you wouldn't put tolls back on bridges again. So uh, we've been, we lifted your tolls. We're making life more affordable for people. Times, you know, have been tough for sure, but we're we're certainly not giving tax breaks to the top 1% um, like you did. Let's continue our by-election debate now in the riding of Vancouver, Colchana. My guests are Liberal candidate Kevin Falcon, NDP candidate Jeanette Ash. Uh, Jeanette, a question for you now. You heard Kevin Falcon bring up the issue of housing affordability in the city and in this province. And I'll tell you, this is a top-of-mind issue for just about everyone listening right now. We talk about it all the time here on this show. You heard Falcon there make the make the claim that NDP has failed to make housing more affordable. How do you respond to that, and what is the NDP's plan here on housing affordability? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, housing, trying to find affordable housing is a really big problem. Like I said earlier, you know, I teach. It's, it's something that's top of mind for my students, and I, I care a lot about it. So what we've been doing is fighting really hard to tackle the crisis and help people. We're fighting speculation. So fighting speculation, we have a speculation tax in place. It's helped turn almost 20,000 empty condos into rental homes for people. So we're increasing supply. This is really important. I mean, housing is all important for so many reasons. We're kickstarting housing construction uh, to help people afford to live in places. We have 32,000 homes complete or underway. Um, but again and again, I mean, Kevin Falcon, he's told us who he is. Uh, he signed with speculators who, you know, like, they benefit from the high housing prices. So instead of just regular people who are looking for, for a place to live. So, um, yeah, we're tackling speculation. And, you know, I have a, a question. You know, you said that you would, you would cancel the speculation tax. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, you said um, that you, if people, people had multiple homes, they shouldn't have to pay the tax, for example. I, would, I just want to ask, like, what will you say to the 18,000 families who will get kicked out of their homes once you cancel the speculation tax. Kevin Falcon. Sure. So I've never said I would cancel the speculation tax. What I have said repeatedly is that the blizzard of new taxes the NDP introduced in 2018 on housing has done absolutely nothing to deal with the housing crisis. We now have the third highest housing prices on the planet. We have the highest housing in North America under the NDP. So the problem is they misdiagnosed the problem. Then all they did was add a whole bunch more cost to housing. And then they sat around wondering, gee, I wonder why housing prices are going up so much. Well, it's because they didn't deal with the the supply side. And only now as they go into their sixth budget have we got the housing minister saying, gee, maybe supply could be part of the problem. We might need to do something about that. Well, no kidding. I mean, anyone that knew anything about the market and the economy and economics would know that they've got it all wrong. And listen... I think what's important to understand is this, results, okay? When I retired from public life in 2012, the average price of a townhome was 450000 Today, under the NDP, it's over a million dollars. So if results matter at all, they're getting the worst possible results, and excuses don't matter. Going back and talking about, you know, my record or whatever from 20 years ago is just okay. a way they avoid talking about their record. Okay, Jeanette Ash, what do you say to that? 
Well, I'm really glad that you brought up your record because that's what you're running on. You're running on your record, so we have to talk about your record. And we know what your record is. You sided with speculators, and you're continuing to do that, and they benefit from high housing prices. And I I just want to say, like, housing starts with us are at an all-time high. We so far have 73,000 more homes than the B.C. Liberals plan ever, ever delivered. Uh, so what you're saying there is untrue. And, and housing is unaffordable, but it's not localized to Vancouver. I mean, it's across the nation. Uh, so I don't think you can fool British Columbians to say this is like a microcosm problem. It, it is, it's a problem everywhere. I'm, and we I'm, are fighting speculation. You know, we're making a lot of progress. Uh, lots America. of people are still struggling, but yeah. we're going to keep going by tackling speculation where we have a record uh, number of homes that we built and we're going to keep going. Let me, go, let me switch to a new topic in the brief Mike, amount sorry, of time. Just, just that we, quick, okay, Kevin, a, go ahead. quick fact yeah. The All speculation right. tax actually has nothing to do with speculation. Speculation is when you're buying flipping properties. The speculation tax applies to people that have, for example, families that have a cottage or a cabin. Two-thirds of it's paid by British Columbians. It's nothing to do with speculation. Okay. Can I, can I the, rebut, please? Can very, I please rebut? Very, very briefly. Yeah, like, oh, thank you for mansplaining me. Like, thank you. But, you know, it's okay to own a second home. That's not what we're saying. But we're just saying that we need more supply to have more affordable housing, just to make sure that if you do have a second home, you make it a bit available for people to rent, like to a nurse or a firefighter or a child care worker. Okay, uh, guys, the time has flown by. We should have booked the whole show for this debate, but we're quickly running out of time. So let me just allow each of you to make a final closing comment. And once again, I'll be watching the clock here. So Dr. Jeanette Ash, I'll let you go first. Go ahead. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, you know, when Kevin Falcon sat around the cabinet table, he and the B.C. Liberals cut services and ignored serious problems like the housing crisis. Their priority was cutting taxes for the rich, while the rest of us paid the price. Kevin Falcon didn't work for people then, and he's not going to work for you now. The last time Kevin Falcon was in power, he showed us who he is. He cut funding that supported sexual assault survivors, and he hasn't apologized for that yet. And I asked him for an apology last week. He cut hundreds of millions to funding to health authorities, forcing them to reduce mental health and addiction services. People are still living with the damage caused by those cuts. The BCNDP is making progress on fixing that damage by investing in people and the services they depend on. Kevin Falcon. John Fal- Kevin and the BCNDP are working for you. There's a lot left to do, but we're, we're doing it. Kevin, you can try to change your okay, story, Ke- but you Fal- can't change your record. Kevin Falcon, you've got a minute here. Go ahead. So I've been around long enough, Mike, to know that when people engage in personal attacks, it's usually to avoid talking about their own record. Here's the bottom line. BC has the highest overdose death rates in the history of the province of British Columbia. Street crime and disorder has gotten worse every single year, especially in Vancouver, where almost 120 people a month are being assaulted by random strangers. We've got the highest housing prices in North America, third highest on the planet. We've got the highest gas prices in North America. Everything works against folks that are just trying to make ends meet. They cannot walk away from that record. Personal attacks aren't going to get you there. I think it's about results, and they're not getting them. I think it's time for confidence and leadership to be returned to British Columbia. And by the way, I love the fact that we took the economy from the worst to the first in the country, got a AAA credit rating, hosted one of the greatest Winter Olympics ever, built some great infrastructure, most of which the NDP opposed, including the Canada Line and the Portman Bridge, and we got the economy moving again. That's what we'll do when I get back in power and become premier of this province.
Thank you to both of you. We could, like I said, we could fill the whole show with this debate, and we really only scratched the surface. But I, I'm very grateful to both of you for agreeing you. to come on. Thank you to both of you, Kevin Falcon. He is the Liberal candidate in Vancouver, Colchana. Dr. Jeanette Ash is the NDP candidate. Voting day in the riding is Saturday, April 30th, which is one week from tomorrow. The advanced polls in the riding uh, are open today. Let's talk about the federal conservative party leadership contest now. And one of the issues that has emerged on the campaign trail now is Canada's system of supply management in some sectors of agriculture, uh, notably dairy, poultry, and eggs in Canada. A lot of people understand it's kind of complicated, but it's f- kind of simple in a way too with supply management and the way it works. So in the milk sector, for example, dairy producers would receive a quota of how much milk they are allowed to produce in a given year. There is also price controls in the market with a minimum price for their milk, and there are strict regulations on how much uh, milk can come into the country from outside of Canada, notably the United States. Now, this has been around a long time. This system, if you talk to a lot of farmers in the system, they say they like it. It gives them predictability and certainty when they're running a farm. But uh, it's been controversial over the years, to say the least. Some people think that we pay too much for milk and cheese and eggs in our country, and we should deregulate uh, this system. Now, I got Scott Aitchison standing by. He's running for the Conservative Party leadership. Have a listen to this here now. Let's go back in time. You'll remember this guy. Uh, U.S. President Donald Trump. He doesn't like Canada's supply management system when it comes to dairy and milk. Have a listen to what Trump had to say about it. And that demands immediately fair trade with all of our trading partners. And that includes Canada. Because in Canada, some very unfair things have happened to our dairy farmers. Okay, well, let's talk about our supply management system. My guest is Scott Aitchison, conservative MP, Perry Sound, Muskoka. And he is running for the leadership of the Federal Conservative Party. And he thinks maybe we should take a look at this supply management system. Scott, thanks a lot for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, I appreciate your time. So tell me your, your thoughts on supply management. You, you think we should we should change this, right? Well, for like you said in the beginning of the, of the segment here, supply management has now for decades driven up the prices of milk and dairy and poultry by limiting the available supply in our marketplace, uh, and it causes inflation. It needs to come to an end. So it punishes consumers. But here's the other thing, Mike. It also punishes farmers who are stuck in a system that limits their ability to grow and compete and sell their products uh, around the world. Uh, I give the example of uh, New Zealand, small country of 5 million people. They exported $17 billion worth of dairy products around the world last year, and Canada exported $378 million. We could do better. So I don't, I don't see this as something, you know, pitting farmers against consumers. I see it as a win-win for farmers and consumers. Okay, so if you were to win the conservative leadership and end up as prime minister, like your government would do what? Completely deregulate this now and just make it completely free market competition in poultry, eggs, dairy? Well, I think it would start with some negotiation. I, 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 listen, I'm, I'm not trying to create a war here with, with dairy farmers either. I believe in collaboration and discussion. It, it's going to take a, probably a couple of years at least to unwind 50 years of policy uh, and a system that you know has existed for a long time. But it's important to remember 
that one of the reasons it was created in the 70s was to try to protect the family farm. There was over 100,000 dairy farms in Canada back then. Today, there's less than 11,000. There's been a lot of consolidation, and there's some vested interests here. So it's going to take a bit of time to get it done, but any investments that we can make at the federal level uh, in terms of, uh, you know, helping farmers, you know, basically compensate them for their quota system. I mean, that these quotas are expensive, right? Uh, but if yeah. we can if we can make investments to help them market their products around the world, they can do a lot better than they do in the in the current mm-hmm. system, and we can competition in the market at the same time. Okay, let me ask you about the affordability piece of it, because that's top of mind for a lot of people right now. We've got brutal inflation right now. A lot of people are struggling out there. And when it comes to the price that Canadians are paying for milk, eggs, poultry, you're saying that under this system, they're paying too much? Absolutely, they are. You got to think too. I mean, it's not, it's not just this system that's been, you know, increasing prices every year. The Dairy Commission has actually just announced they're increasing prices another 8.4% this year. But you got to think now there's carbon taxes on top of that that makes, you know, everything you buy in a grocery store is shipped there in a truck that uses fuel. So inflation, uh, fuel costs, you know, really bad policy from a liberal government for the last seven years. It's making food very expensive. Supply management alone costs families with children almost $600 a year extra at the grocery store. I, I represent a lot of families who just can't afford that. Yeah. What do you say? This is an issue that has divided a lot of Canadians and and divided a lot of conservatives, too, because I I recall in a previous conservative leadership contest, this this came up. And I remember talking to former conservative leader Andrew Scheer about this, who I I believe wanted to keep the supply management system in place. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it it came in the 2017 race. And uh, there's no question that uh, this is an issue that you know, dairy farmers are, are keen to keep the status quo is because uh, it's what they know. It's what they've always known. Uh, but I, uh, I fundamentally think that opportunity abounds, really opportunity abounds for farmers uh, if we work together uh, and we can make life a little bit, a little bit more affordable for, for Canadians. You gotta, you gotta keep in mind that, you know, one in five children in this country live in poverty. Let's make it a little cheaper for them to eat good food. Speaking of conservative MP Scott Aitchison, he's running for the Conservative Party leadership and his promise to end supply management in agriculture. No, it'd be dairy, poultry, eggs. Okay, Scott, let me play a clip here for you from a BC dairy farmer. Her name is Julianne Truer uh, from Creekside Dairy in Agassiz. And she likes this supply management system. They, they run a small farm there. And she says that the system works well for her and her family. Have a listen to what she says here, speaking to CBC here, and I'll get your thoughts. Supply management guarantees stability for our farms. With that gone, I don't know what the future would look like. When you go to the bank to ask for a loan, they look at our system as a guarantee of stability. As long as we're producing milk, we're going to get a guaranteed income, and we're going to be able to make our bank payments. Our average farm size here is 85 cows. They've got dairies down there with tens of thousands of cows. The amount that they produce would totally flood our market. It would literally drive our dairy farms out of business. Okay, so 85 cows, a small operation, and she's worried about competing against, you know, massive dairy farms in the United States if we opened up here. What do you say to her? Well, as I, as I said already, this is, this is going to take some negotiation. It'll be a gradual process of unwinding that, of the, of unwinding that system. But oh. I will say this. Stability and and control of a market 
uh, is it really, you know, a pretty high price to pay for a lot of families who cannot afford to eat. We, we have an affordability crisis in this country, and, and food is a major issue. And so I, I just fundamentally think that it's important for us to provide new opportunities for farmers while also making food easier to buy for people who can't afford it. Wouldn't you, if you ended the supply management system that we have in our country as it exists right now, does that not run the risk of overproduction of dairy, for example? Like in the United States, you often hear stories about overproduction of milk and farmers actually dumping out milk because they've just got too much of it. Could the same thing happen here in Canada if you deregulate? Yeah, the same thing could happen here if you if you if you deregulate or or unwind this policy uh, in the same way. I think it's important to note that there are there's more than one way to run this system. The American way is probably not the best way either, frankly. Uh, but there are lots of countries around the world that uh, that do a little bit better. Uh, and I just think that, that you know we we don't have to necessarily open the floodgates completely. Uh, we need to start building those new markets, opening up those new markets. Uh, as part of that transition. So I, I think that Canadian dairy farmers are among the best in the world. They produce some of the best products in the world. Why not Why not provide the opportunity for the world to buy those? Uh, I, I think it's defeatist to say that we're just going to get gobbled up and, and uh, you know, uh, there won't be any Canadian dairy farms anymore. That's self-defeating. I think we, we have some of the best in the world. Let's prove it. Speaking of Scott Aitchison, Conservative MP, he's running for the Conservative Party leadership, talking about supply, management, dairy, poultry, eggs. What about trade with the United States? We've got a very kind of a protectionist system. It's been loosened up a little bit after pressure from the Trump administration here in past years, but still a very protected industry, right? Like, how do you see trade between, say, Canada and the United States when it comes to milk? Well, I, obviously, there's an opportunity for Canadian milk products to be sold in the United States as well. Uh, there's, I'm sure, lots of specialty products that uh, Americans would love to buy. But I think it's important to keep this in, in the perspective of, of our entire trading relationship. Canada is a trading nation. If we don't trade, we don't live nearly as well as we do. And, and so that's important. So I, I think I think it's also important to, to recognize that you know, the other trading issues that we have in the United States, you know, those can be on the table now, too. The way they treat our softwood lumber industry, for example. Let's let's stop getting pushed around on issues like that. Yeah. Do you uh, think, think that do you think do you think the issue of um, supply management is in some ways runs counter to a, a conservative philosophy for the economy? Like I remember back in the the other leadership campaign that we went that we briefly touched on when when Maxime Bernier when he was he he called for an end to supply management it sparked a fierce debate with Andrew Scheer and Scheer ended up winning the Conservative Party leadership boy it really divided a lot of conservatives but I remember I remember Bernier saying that conservatives who rely who defend a supply managed system like this are basically fake fake conservatives. Do you, do you agree with that? No, I don't agree with that. And and, and that kind of flamethrower language is completely uncalled for. Uh, it's there's been too much of that in our politics in both parties, frankly, and it needs to stop. I I believe that there are lots of different conservatives and there are lots of different perspectives. But I also believe that there, you know, our our system of our economic system and government system has certain checks and balances in it. 
and and some adjustments here and there are necessary. This this supply management system, you know, I'm sure it was started with all the best of intentions. Uh, and, and, of course, there's lots of political considerations, but I'm not interested in the political considerations. I'm interested in doing what's best for Canadian families, period. Yeah, your, your uh, opponent, Pierre Polyev, who was a, a guest here on the show yesterday, has said that he would not change Canada's supply management system here in these sectors, even though, even though he has famously said he wants Canada to be the freest country in the world. But I guess this is one part that he, he would not want to tinker with when it comes to government regulation of this industry. What, what do you think of his position? Uh, again, I'm not talking about the other candidates or their positions. I'm talking oh, you're running, about you're running against them for the leadership, aren't you? Yeah, and I'm presenting ideas to the Canadian public and to Conservatives, uh, and that's what I'm going to be doing, just presenting ideas and having discussion about good policy and not critiquing the others at all. Okay, okay. What kind of reaction have, you've got, have you received here in the last couple of days after you uh, introduced this policy? Uh, the, uh, the reaction's been uh, largely positive from Conservatives. There's a lot of Conservatives that think it's great that I'm uh, opening this conversation and doing it in a respectful way. Yeah. I'm not trying to demonize one group over another. Now, there's a few dairy farmers that are not happy with my position, but I'm open yeah. to chatting with and, and, uh, and, and some of my caucus colleagues who've raised the issue with me as well. Uh, as I said, okay. I'm, not, I'm not suggesting we just, you know, flip a switch and throw dairy farmers to the wolves. I'm suggesting yeah. that we start the process now. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, it's an interesting issue, to say the least. Thanks for coming on today to talk about it. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Vancouver's crime wave now, and we've talked a lot about this on the show, the random attacks, the assaults, the rampant shoplifting, the broken windows. There's a problem in a lot of Vancouver neighborhoods, the downtown, the West End, Gastown, Granville, Strathcona, all these neighborhoods have seen these kind of problems. What is the answer here? Well... How about expanded video surveillance, more closed circuit TV cameras, CCTV? Would this make the city safer? Help police solve more violent crimes, create a deterrence for criminals. Maybe if they know there are more of these cameras around, maybe we'd have fewer of these random assaults for a day on average right now in the city of Vancouver. Expanded CCTV cameras being backed now by Vancouver City Councilor Melissa D. Genova. She brought a motion to council on this. Now, does this sound familiar? A similar motion in front of council back in 2018. The proposal at that time, install a surveillance camera system in the Granville Entertainment District. That motion was voted down by the council because of privacy concerns. Councilor D. Genova says it's time for a rethink on that because of the violence that we're seeing, the random assaults that we're seeing. What do you think about it? CCTV cameras, more closed-circuit cameras, more surveillance cameras on the streets of Vancouver, yes or no? Get set to call me on that. Let's discuss it with my guest, Richmond City Councilor Michael Wolf. Michael, thanks for coming on today. Hey, great to be here. Happy Earth Day to you and all your listeners. Thank you, Councillor. Same to you. Thanks for coming on. I know you've expressed some concerns around this idea in the past. What are your concerns around these type of surveillance systems? Uh, yeah, there's a, a number I'll just briefly mention. Uh, this, um, I'm speaking about Richmond, not uh, downtown Vancouver. Right. Um, but the main issues that, that I've heard from residents and experienced myself uh, is just the intrusion of privacy. And, and what it does is break uh, trust between um, those doing the surveillance and those who are intending to be good citizens. 
And when there's already a hit uh, on um, the kind of connection and support for uh, enforcement uh, around North America, um, adding one more challenging uh, layer or separation between public and and enforcement, I I don't think is, is wise. Um, in the city of Richmond, we just hired 16 more police officers and support workers where they're on the ground and can actually prevent crime. Cameras are just going to capture the crime. I know people who have cameras who, who watch someone go into their driveway and key their vehicle, and they get to watch it on repeat again and again. It still happened. Um, a high school teacher as well. And putting up cameras, like you've mentioned, uh, will deter people. But it really is can be just a dummy camera with a little red light that blinks in it. And, uh, and things that used to happen in that hallway don't happen anymore. And another thing is the cost. There's a huge cost to install these, to upgrade them, to maintain them. They're quite flimsy devices that in the challenging weather or hailstorms uh, and, and to clean the, the surface of them and to store all the data and have people yeah. go through all of that. It, it's just an incredible amount of energy required. Do, do you think people, though, might feel differently if they were a victim of a crime? And I'm thinking here about Darlene Bennett, uh, the victim's rights advocate, the widow of Paul Bennett, who was the Surrey dad who was gunned down in his own driveway a few years ago in what police described as a mistaken identity gang hit. This is one of the most tragic murders we've seen in B.C., still unresolved. And she has spoken out about if they'd had surveillance cameras, maybe they could have caught the killer. I'll, pl- I'll play this very briefly for you, Counselor, get your thoughts. So this is Darlene Bennett on surveillance cameras. Have a listen here. That's a tool they need to um, solve uh, murders and violent crime quicker. Okay, so she thinks that if they had had a good, clear picture of her husband, her husband's killer, maybe they would have caught the guy. Your thoughts? Yeah, uh, and, and, and may, may well have, have been able to, to help do that. But the cameras that are up there right now, they are already um, able to be used by enforcement officers when there is a, a, a something very serious that needs to be identified. Um, but the, the change to what's being proposed in Vancouver is that that's the, the main intention of them, is that they're always surveying people and they're always being um, checked and, and, and observed and, and people's faces are being matched with their license plate, and, and where can that data go? So, yes, we, yeah. we could get some benefits from it, but we could also put a lot of risk at losing that information and who could be buying it or trading for it, and then, and then what other uh, harms could be done. People will know where, where you are at all times because th- they can track you. Yeah. yeah, do you think that the, the idea that these cameras could be used to, to catch murderers and, and to catch people who commit these random assaults, do you think that is overrated? Well, I, I say that it, it is, if that's your, your, your reason to push to, to do this, the cameras that we already have in Richmond, over 100 of them in main intersections, they're already used to help deal with the vehicle crimes that occur. And, and they, the, 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 so the footage is there, and we've had incidents where a person in the middle of the day shot someone at the airport and drove through many of these cameras. They were able to be tracked, their vehicle, where they ended up was in Surrey and they burned their vehicle. But uh, so in the end, the cameras will not guarantee catching uh, criminals. And it's not that that guarantee, uh, suggested guarantee, should not be what we do to guess, tip the balance on privacy. I guess um, I guess nothing can be guaranteed. But I I'd also think, though, that these cameras have been shown to be effective in in catching some of these criminals and solving some of these cases. And 
the evidence for that, I mean, if you just do a Google search right now for suspect arrested and surveillance video in Vancouver, and you will find a long list of recent examples of this, like, you know, that, that Mexican tourist who was stabbed in that Vancouver Tim Hortons back in January, you know, they caught a suspect there after video surveillance was released by the police. The guy who was pushed down the stairs in the SkyTrain station, you know, thousands of people saw that video. It's brutal, a random attack. Again, you know, cops release the video. They catch a suspect. The woman who was randomly assaulted in downtown Vancouver outside the Georgia Hotel. This is another just brutal random attack. And a 22-year-old woman is walking down West Georgia Street. And some guy grabs her, throws her to the ground. And they release the video, they catch a suspect. So doesn't that show that it works? Uh, The camera footage and and photos being taken of of criminals get shared all the time. I have the Richmond RCMP app. It it shows me an image. This is who we're trying to find. And within days, they take the image down because it's worked. We already have a network. We have public um, accessible photos in indoor buildings on people's smartphones. We can we can cap we can capture the footage as we need as is. But you you are right. There are concentrated centers and around like Olympic events. And, and certain courier is that, yes, maybe maybe they do need it. But to make the switch that all cameras all of a sudden become the CCTV um, yeah. cameras, that, that's, that's the big hesitation. So, I have. so your concern is not the existing cameras that we have, which in some cases have proven to be effective. Your concern is the ex- potential expansion of it. And, right? Yeah, and, and flipping all ca- existing cameras into that style that they can be tapped into as the primary reason for them being there, as opposed to it being a, a secondary reason when there is valid uh, approval uh, and approval from the BC Privacy Commission. I, I'm really in support of the, the, their position on this, and I think it, it's... What is, their, what, is that, their posi- yeah. what is their position on it? That, that, that Richmond shouldn't be making the, sw- the switch to, to doing that or other municipalities. Right. They, and and, and to, there's th- things that need to be worked out first. Who's going to be able to store this data? Is it going to be the RCMP or the law enforcement, or does it have to be the municipality? And they need to be set up in, in, in a way that their servers are secure and, and, and that, that it, we're not there yet. And so maybe, maybe in time, uh, we could, it would be something more uh, that the public can stomach. But right now, this, this I think, is, is, uh, would be atrocious hit to our, our, um, our, our trust in the system and our, our freedom of, of privacy. All right, Councillor, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I, I appreciate it, and I look forward to your listeners' comments. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's Michael Wolf. there. He's a city councillor. Let's talk about the shortage of family doctors in British Columbia. A lot of people relying on walk-in clinics now. That includes our family. We used to have a family doctor. He was great. Uh, he, was, he was recommended to me by a friend of mine. And we were able to get in with him. This is going back a few years. And I'll tell you, it was awesome to have a family doctor, like someone who knows your medical history and go get a checkup and keep on top of things for yourself, your, your spouse, your kids. I mean, it was a good system. And then he moved away. And that, that was bad. Like he just he shut down his practice. He moved away. Didn't have anyone to take over his practice. That was it. I was done. And I've been unable to find a, a family doctor since then. Now, We've been using a walk-in clinic most of the time. And, well, it's really the only option we got. If you need prescriptions, you need you had something wrong, you need to see a doctor, yeah, we go to the walk-in clinic. This is the option for a lot of people now. But even that now is becoming a problem. 
the walk-in clinic that I normally use, it is it is tough to get in there now. You've got it. They're only doing it over the phone now, basically for consultations, and you have to make an appointment. It is it's tough to get in there, and we've seen some walk-in clinics actually shut down. The result, the demands on this system now, longer wait times. When you go to a walk-in clinic, check this out now. Brand new report just out from Medimap. The average wait time to see a doctor at a walk-in clinic. Where do you think the longest, the longest wait times are in Canada? I'll give you one guess. You probably only need one. Let's check in with Blake Adam now. He's the founder and CEO of Medimap. Pleased to welcome him. Hey, Blake, thanks for coming on. Hey, hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Okay, can you tell me briefly about Medimap? What do you guys do over there? Yeah, so we have a service that most of the walk-in medical clinics across BC and, and across the country use to publish their wait times online. Uh, we started it back in 2015, and uh, the clinics sign up, and their staff use their, their wait time to publish it. We just wanted to make it easier for people to be able to find uh, a doctor in their community if, if they don't have a family doctor like you like you explained. Yeah, and I have used your service, and I do find it helpful because you're, it allows you to see where the, like I found it the shortest wait time, right? So you can take a look online and say, okay, the wait time is probably going to be shortest at this walk-in clinic, so that's the one I'm going to go go to. Is that what most people use it for? Yeah, that, that's the idea. Yeah. We we yeah. just want to um, make it easier by you know using the available resources in the system more efficiently. Um, you can also see when clinics have closed early for the day because there's nothing worse than traveling down to a clinic only to find that they've reached capacity and being turned away. Yeah. Okay. So you've now come up with this new report looking at wait times across Canada. What did you find out? Yeah, so now that we work with most of the clinics in the country, we uh, we went back and took a look at our data for 2021 uh, to see, on average, how long are people waiting at a walk-in clinic. And what we found um, across the country, on average, people are waiting about 25 minutes to see a doctor at a walk-in clinic. That was down 20% from 2019 before the pandemic. But what struck us was uh, that wasn't the case in BC. In BC, on average, people are uh, in 2021, we're waiting about an hour to see a doctor um, on any given day at a walk-in clinic, which was up 35% from the pre-pandemic days in 2019. So a pretty significant difference. And that is the longest in Canada, correct? Yeah, by far, yeah. Um, BC. And, and we, we looked at the top 10 cities um, because, of course, care is a, a, a local thing. And we um, we found that six of the top 10 cities uh, in terms of longest wait times were, were located in BC with Victoria being yeah. by far the longest. Yeah, this is uh, an ignominious distinction for British Columbia here for sure. We got the longest wait times to see a doctor at a walk-in clinic in all of Canada. I'm taking a look at your top 10 list of cities across the country. Number one, longest wait time, Victoria, 160 minutes. Wow. Yeah. It's like two and a half, what, two and a half hours. Yeah, over See, two and a half hours. Wow, that's in Victoria. Number two, second longest wait time, Kelowna. This mm-hmm. isn't, this is a whole country. Victoria, the longest. Kelowna, second longest in all of Canada. White Rock, third longest. North Vancouver, number four. Vancouver, number five. Maple Ridge, number six. <laughs> we got, we have the top six in the whole country for the longest waits. Wow. Yeah. Why? Why is that happening? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. It was a bit of a surprise to us. We had expected to see the wait times going down, um, you know, from the pre-pandemic days, just given that so many people are, uh, you know, we're staying home and not going to clinics or doing virtual visits, which are quicker. And that, that is what we saw in every other province, but not not in B.C. So I, I think it just comes down to supply and demand, like you alluded to in the in the intro. A lot of people don't have a family doctor, like 850,000 in B.C. was the last I saw. And um, so as a result, people end up relying on these uh, walk-in medical clinics, yeah. and it's just putting strain on the system. Is there a demographic explanation for that? Like, does British Columbia have an, an on average, an older population and maybe more people are go- need to go to the doctor? Is that, an, is that partially explain it? I, I don't know. I think, I think there are a ton of contributing factors to what makes care accessible in, in a given community. Um, and it does, you know, it varies widely by communities, as you noted, with Victoria being way higher than even Vancouver. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think, uh, prob- probably, you know, um, availability of family doctors, like clinics per capita, um, maybe, maybe aging population, hard to say exactly, but. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I, what about the shortest wait times? Where are the shortest wait times in Canada? Um, so Ontario by far, we found cities like Brampton, Mississauga, Scarborough, Sudbury. These were some of the, the cities that had some of the shortest wait times, but interestingly, um, you know, like Coquitlam, Abbotsford, uh, you know, these these are cities where um, people on average last year were waiting less than 20 minutes to see a doctor. So, hmm. Speaking of Blake Adam, he's the founder and CEO of Medimap, and we're talking about wait times to see a doctor at a walk-in clinic. British Columbia, the longest wait times in the country. We've had some walk-in clinics actually shut down, notably in Victoria, longest wait times in the whole country. We've had several clinics shut down. That's got to make things worse, right? Yeah, we'll see when we do the report next year, because I think in the past four months, there have been a handful of clinics that have shut down. So we'll see what impact that has. So, so you mean these statistics were, were, this study was done before some of these clinics actually closed down? Yeah, that's right. This was oh. for 2021. Yeah. Oh, is this going to get worse then? We'll see. I, I, Probably not promising, but yeah, yeah, it could get it could get worse. What kind of impact does this have? Like you talked about strains on the system, could you expand on that? What kind of strains are we seeing? Well, I think I think it's showing in the data that um, with you know wait times going up, more people are relying on the clinics, and it's uh, and people are waiting longer. And and that really was why we started MediMap. So when people go to MediMap.ca, they can see on any given day in their city um, if there are inefficiencies. So if there sometimes there are clinics that have shorter waits at any given time, and this data that we have in the report is of course the the average. So yeah, is there a concern that if the wait times become too long? Like people might just say, "Well, forget it. I'm not even going to bother." And then, who knows? Maybe an important health health issue gets missed. Yeah, hopefully not, um, right? Like we, yeah. we we hope that people are going in and getting things addressed. And 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 again, I'll just reiterate by by going to, to the site there there on any given day, you can get in to see a doctor. And and at different times yeah. in the day, there are times when you can get in fairly quickly. So um, that's that's exactly why we created the service. When are when are typically the shortest waits? Like for people who are thinking like, oh, I've got to go to one of these clinics. When do you think, like, are there particular days of the week or a particular time of day when the, the wait times are usually shorter? We, we didn't include that in the analysis, but from what we've seen typically later in the week, um, actually like Monday, every every uh, every week, we typically see, typically see as a trend, Mondays are, are the busiest. You know, I guess people coming back from the weekend. Um, I, I think part of it, the other thing you can do um, is go on and, and see last minute appointments for other types of service providers. And I know this is something that's been a topic is 
you know, um, care teams trying to take some of the burden off of the family doctors by hooking people up with um, teams of care providers. So when you go to Medimap, you can actually see last minute physio appointments and chiro appointments and, and RMT appointments, which we're hoping can also help to reduce some of the strain on, on the walk-in clinics. Yeah, where can people find that if they want to check that system out that you run there? Where, where do they find Medimap? Uh, they just have to go onto the web and, and search for, you know, go into Google and search for Medimap or go straight to medimap.ca, M-E-D-I-M-A-P.ca. And you can do it on your phone or computer. Um, you can just go ahead and search for your city and choose the type of care you're looking for. Right. And you have to sign up or is it free? Uh, it's free to use. And Good. no, you don't have to sign up. You just, um, you can go straight in and, and search for the type of care you're looking for and find the results. Okay. I like it. Blake, thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back. Here we go now with the anti-old growth logging blockades of metro roads and bridges. We've seen several of these over the last few weeks becoming more frequent. The blockaders getting bolder. They blocked busy Highway 1 recently. And then yesterday, protesters blocked the busy Iron Workers Memorial Bridge, frustrating commuters. And this got pretty, pretty wild. Some drivers just fed up, had enough of it, got out of their cars, tried to drag the protesters to the side of the bridge. Have a listen to this here. Now, I caught on video yesterday on the iron workers. You hear one angry driver here shouting at the protesters. Listen here. I got kids in the car that are sick. Get the f out of the road. Yeah, I got kids. I got sick kids in my car. The driver was angry. VPD spokesperson Constable Tanya Vicentine talking about the drivers who were taking the direct action here to deal with the protesters. Here's, here's what she had to say about it. Our tolerance level is much lower. Uh, we know the public is very frustrated and their tolerance level is low and therefore we will be responding quicker. We don't encourage that type of behavior. Um, we don't encourage people to take matters into their own hands, no matter how frustrated you are. Okay, so she's saying to drivers, if you get stuck behind one of these, the police will respond more quickly. Do not get out of your vehicle and deal with it yourself. Well, that's what we saw yesterday. Uh, the protesters saying they're not going anywhere. They will they will block more bridges and roads. Let's discuss it now. Got both sides of it here for you. Zane Hack is a student at Simon Fraser University. He's a coordinator of some of these uh, blockades. Zane, thank you for coming on again. Yeah, hi, Mike. Thanks for doing it. Bill Dumont is a retired forester, and I'm very pleased to welcome Bill back to the show as well. Bill, thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me again. Uh, all right, gents, thank you to both of you. Zane Hack, let me go to you first. Zane, why do you guys keep doing this? Because, man, you are really ticking a lot of people off. I and mean, we saw that really boil over yesterday in the iron workers. What is the point? Well, you know, the fact of the matter is we've been writing letters for 30 years. We've been signing petitions for 30 years. We've been doing marches for 30 years, and nothing has happened, right? Carbon emissions have gone up by 60%, and our demand is very minor, and we're nonviolently disrupting the public by engage and in doing so, we're engaging the public in the debate that we're literally faced with the annihilation of the human race. Sir David King, the former chief scientific advisor to the UK government, has said we have two to three years left to save humanity. That's no small thing. He's not an environmentalist. He's not a radical. He's the top chief scientific advisor, right? That's a big thing. And so we're nonviolently retired firefighters, uh, teachers, professors, students, people who would usually not be involved in activism getting on but, the road and being beaten Zane, up, and they're fine with it. But, Zane, when it's a battle for hearts and minds, you want to try and get people on your side. 
this sounds about, like the opposite. Zane, hang on, man. You're 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 pissing people off, dude. Yeah, it's like, not you, a battle for hearts not, and minds. What what is it then? I mean, how how else so, do you how else do you achieve government policy if you don't get right. the public behind you? By forcing it. So Martin Luther King, when he died, had a disapproval rating of eighty five percent. How come those people? forced legislative change time and time again. The Freedom Riders in the 1960s who were boycotting, who were demanding the desegregation of buses, were beaten up by the public, and the ambulance drivers refused to take them to the hospital. How did they manage to get the desegregation? By forcing it, by filling up the prison. That's our plan. Okay, our let plan me, okay, is let me to go fill up the prisons. Let me go to Bill Dumont, get his thoughts on it. Bill, what do you think? Well, <clears throat> what's going on is pretty crazy stuff. It's uh, akin to the recent tree spiking out at Ferry Creek. Uh, you know, the, these are these are terrorist tactics designed to, as you say, Mike, piss off the public, and that's what's happening. It's not doing any uh, good to support the cause that they claim that they want to support. I mean, the whole issue is based on a lie that somehow BC is losing or has lost all its old growth. In fact, more than 10% of B.C. land base is old-growth forest. And half of all the old growth that was here when commercial logging began 150 years ago is still here. And we are global champions in the preservation of old forests. And it, Zane is just spouting nonsense when he talks about we have to save the last old growth. Well, there is no last old growth. There's lots of it here. And the tie-in between climate change and old growth is a little more complicated than he suggests. Old growth forests are not carbon sucks like young growth forests. They do store carbon, no doubt about it, and they're important from a climate change perspective. But to suggest that you can't log without causing climate change is, is simply scientifically nonsense. Zane Hack, what do you say to that? So, yeah, let's talk about hearts and minds. There are two people, Howard Breen and Brent Eichler, who are on a hunger strike right now. Howard Breen is on day 22 today, and he stopped taking fluids last night. And his demand is not even about a big old-growth legislation change. His demand is for a public meeting with the Minister of Forests, who is, uh, you know, responsible to the people. And, like, he may die today or tomorrow. He will be hospitalized. He has stopped taking water. So this is broader than old growth. You're right. This is broader than old growth and the environment. This is about political corruption. This is about the fact that Sir David King has said what we do in the next two to three years will determine the future of humanity. And when we go over two degrees increase in global average temperatures, we will face mass starvation at a scale we've never seen before. Let me this go. is no joke, okay? Like, if you go back you to, to get the biblical about times, this. you've had people say the sky is falling, and that's a lot of what this nonsense talk King. that we've got two Sir years David left. King. I mean, give us a break. It's Sir uh, David it, King. Bill, Bill the, former Dumont, you... scientific, the former chief scientific advisor to the British government has said this. Okay, Bill, let me ask you about the the blockades that we're seeing because we've seen a lot of them recently. What do you do? You think that puts any pressure at all on government to change policies when the when they see people blocking bridges and highways? No, not at all. You know, I spent ten years working together of a committee of environmentalists and others, First Nations to resolve the conflict in the Great Bear Rainforest. It was tough, hard work, not simply going out and blocking roads in Vancouver to get your way to what happens in, in Bella Coola or Bella Bella. It's tough work, 
to collaborate and come up with environmental solutions. And the idea of blocking traffic as a way of achieving some consensus or agreement on how we deal with old growth or forestry issues is ridiculous. It it, it isn't the way to resolve problems. Zane, what do you say to that? Well, we've been doing that tough work. I'm not doubting that it's tough work. We've been doing that for 30 years in carbon emissions. I've never seen you at any of the tables. Carbon, I was at a meeting with George Heyman this morning, and all he gave me was complete bullshit that he usually gives people, that he'll pass on the message. Well, you know, the plan isn't just to block roads. The plan is to fill up the prison. They can put 400 people in prison if they want. That's perfectly fine. Or they can pass legislation that is supported by over 80% of rich Colombians support protecting so, so your objective is to fill the prisons? Our objective is to force the government to act in the public interest, which is to save civilization from annihilation, which is what Sir, Sir David King has said. If you go over to... Are, are you at university? Like, are you studying some science Sir, with what listen, you're talking about? Hey, Sir David... I listen to experts. Sir David King is the former... Chief uh, is he on advisor. the internet? Is the that former, your source of research he's, to he's, he told that you in these things? Hang, hang on, let's Sir not David talk King. over each other. Zane, go Sir ahead. David King. Sir David King said that to us on a Zoom call. Okay, he's a few weeks ago. He said that it's two. You've got two to three years left to save humanity. I, I talked to these people. Sir David King is not a radical sort of outlier okay. scientist guy. He's the top of the establishment, and he's okay. shitting himself. Okay, let me let me just fit a break in there as we must do. And Bill, I know you want to respond to that, but let's put the break in here. Come back and continue. They want to provoke anger from citizens. That's not how you affect change in a civil society. As Premier John Horgan speaking yesterday about the blockade we saw yesterday on the Ironworkers Bridge. I've got blockade organizer Zane Hack on the line. Bill Dumont is a retired forester on the other side. Tons of calls. Glenn and Maple Ridge. Hi, Glenn. Go ahead. Uh, first and foremost, Zane. Are you Zane or are you in Zane? First and foremost, I think a majority of the British Columbians agree with you that we should save old growth forests. But your tactics the, and the way you speak, I heard you speak yesterday as well on the radio. And it's like you've got this script and you talk about this Dr. King who's a miracle worker. It sounds like you're working out of a cult mentality. Um, somebody asked you, uh, the guest there, the ex-forester there, he asked you if you're studying forestry or anything like that, and you wouldn't answer. So you're probably like an art lit major. Okay, let me, let's let him defend himself. Zane, go ahead. So, like, the thing is, what, what the caller said about how 80% of rich Colombians support our, our demand, that shows you how little that means. The 80% of rich Colombians support uh, protecting our old growth forests, but have that transformed into legislative change it hasn't so that's our that's where we come in okay our tactic is not about and the premier i heard the premier uh saying something earlier about these tactics won't work the premier is from a union background he knows full well that if this goes on long enough the cost will be too high and he'll have to come to the table he knows this bill dumont what do you say Well, that isn't the way that legislation is changed in B.C. And the problem is here that most of the basis of this conflict that that Zane uh, says has to be resolved is simply misleading information. We have 10% of B.C.'s land base is covered with old-growth forests. We are a global champion in terms of the amount of old forests that we've preserved. Are we preserving everything? No, 
but the vast majority of old growth now is protected in BC. And to, to go and clamor that every last uh, tree, old growth tree, has to be protected is nonsense. There's 200 First Nations and businesses, First Nations owned businesses, that are involved in the forest sector. And they are not going to agree to a complete wipeout of their financial interests and their job opportunities okay. in the forest sector by buying into Zane's image. It, okay, it's simply to, not going to happen. The Americans the, have not preserved all of their old growth. They've preserved some of it, and neither should BC. Okay, let's back to the phone lines. Mike in Surrey. Hi, Mike, go ahead. Yeah, I just, uh, I'm not worried about global warming, climate change, any of that. I'm just more worried about pollution than anything. And um, the fires that we had are can be attributed to many things, but uh, global warming, I don't think, is one of them, and uh, the seas are not rising, and uh, I just I don't. You don't, buy you don't think you don't think the crazy weather that we've seen, and the fires, and the heat domes, and the floods, you don't think that's related to climate change? No, we've been putting out fires for the last fifty, sixty years. The the fuel on the ground is what we got to worry about. Zane Hack, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, there's a very clear correlation. What we know from the IPCC is that in the next 15 to 20 years and in the next 30 years, we might go over two degrees increase in global average temperatures. Here's what that means, right? On land, that means seven degrees on average globally. And what that means is that half of the world's population won't be able to live where it lives right now. This is from a peer-reviewed paper called The Future of the Human Niche. One billion people will be on the move. That doesn't happen in a vacuum. That means societal collapse. It means mass starvation and mass murder. Okay, keep calling me. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Bob in Qualicum Beach. Hi, Bob. Go ahead. Hi. Um, you know, the environmental movement continues to use and endorse the narrative that only 3% of old growth remains in BC, even though it's long been proven by independent experts to sort of be 30%, 50%. So I, I suspect this is done for marketing purposes and fundraising, so create a dramatic, you know, false story. So you, as one of your guests uh, um, here today, have an opportunity to stop this mistruth right now. Zane, what do you or, say or to that? you continue to mislead the public? Zane. Well, I haven't been arrested 10 times, and I haven't been, been to prison just to mislead the public. We're faced with a real emergency, okay? Sir David King is not, you know, I'm not just quoting a random scientist who agrees with me. This is the top government advisor to the UK government. It's not a joke. And I talk to Peter Carter all the time. He is uh, uh, an IPCC expert reviewer. And he's saying that, you know, it's actually beyond hopeless at this point, that we, okay. we can't do anything. Bill so Dumont, yeah. just in the interest one of, of the, time, Bill, One of the ahead. solutions to climate change is reforestation and planting trees. The biggest carbon suck in the world is a tree. And by doing... Uh, the excellent job we do in BC with reforestation, we are actually helping to mitigate climate change. I don't think anybody disputes that it's happening. The, the problem is getting it to a manageable level. But the caller's right. I mean, there's so much misinformation about the dire conditions of preserving old growth. We are a global champion. There's no one else in the world has preserved as much old forest as British Columbia has. Okay, let's squeeze in one more call. Dev on Vancouver Island. Hi, Dev. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, this guy who's speaking, uh, this Zane fellow, reminds me of those followers of the Hale-Bopp Comet. Um, you know, I did a little bit of research on Sir David King. 
this man, he, he, he wears different hats, jumps from issue to issue. And I, I like to remind uh, Zane that predictions have been wrong for the last 50 years. And, and maybe you didn't know this, but you know we were once covered in ice. And, and, and temperatures do change. And, okay. there's, and, and so we need some balance here. Okay, thank you for the call. Zane, I know you want to respond to that, but we are out of time. I want to thank you for your time, though. Zane, thank you for coming on. Bill thank Dumont. You. Bill, thank you once again for being here. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you for all the calls. We had a ton of them there. We could not get to everyone. John Horgan canceling any plans to vacation in Russia now. Let's check in with John Iveson now, a political columnist at the National Post. He's also on Vladimir Putin's sanction list. Hey, John, thanks for coming on. No problem, Mike. Okay, congratulations to you for being on this list. I agree with Horgan there. I do think it's kind of a badge of honor. John, how did you find out that you have been you were officially on this sanction list uh, released by Russia? Uh, well, somebody sent me the list that came out. There was a press release released. Every everything was in Cyrillic, so you couldn't understand very much of it. But you got the gist of it, and you could see your own. I saw my own name there, and uh, I thought that's there, there goes the super yacht that I've got uh, moored on the Black Sea. <laughs> okay. Okay. There goes your vacay to to, to Russia too. So you actually, yeah. so you found out about this by actually reading the press release. Is that right? Yeah. 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 No, it's, I mean, they they do they do put out. It, it's all official. They do put out a press release. And they do say that there may be future actions taken. So who knows? What that might be. As long as it's, it doesn't involve nerve agents, then uh, oh. then we'll probably be okay. But yeah, I mean, in practical terms, it means. As far as I can see, very little. It might mean more to Mark McKinnon, my my colleague from the Global Mail, who actually uh, works in in uh, in Moscow sometimes. So, you know, for him, practically, that's an issue. For me, not so much. What went through your mind, John, when you saw your name on this sanction list released by Russia? What did you think of that? Well, I think that uh, you know, I mean, there have been some of us have been quite outspoken about the government's performance on this. And that, I've been hammering away at it. That they, why, how come we've been so slow in releasing military aid? Uh, you know, there was a plan to send them Harpoon missiles, which we've got on our frigates. There was a plan to free up some of the 600-odd light-armoured vehicles that we've got, that uh, most, some of which are going out to pasture. You know, the government seems very reluctant. In fact, not so much even the, the political side. It's more the bureaucracy does not want to release the stuff. So I've been pretty vocal in, in urging more action more quickly because we can see that you know things are about to get pretty dark over there and they need heavy artillery and they need light-armoured vehicles. And it, and it was only really in the last week that uh, Justin Trudeau surprisingly announced that we're going to send some artillery to, uh, to Ukraine, pretty much because Joe Biden the previous week had said he was going to send it. And I suspect... It'll all be on the same flight, and it'll, the Americans will train people and will provide the ammunition. So they've taken the lead. But Canada's at last moving a bit more quickly. And, you know, I guess that, that anybody who advocates that kind of thing is not, not what the Russians want to hear for sure. Speaking to National Post columnist John Iveson in Ottawa, he was officially banned and sanctioned by Russia this week. So, yeah, John, I've read, I read your column regularly, and I've read your columns uh, criticizing uh, the Trudeau government. So, you know, your take on this has been what that Canada should be sending more military, more military equipment over there to help Ukraine. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, the government announced five hundred million dollars in uh, in the budget for military aid for Ukraine, but I mean. 
you know, you start putting contracts out to tender for armored vehicles or for whatever else, and it's going to be, you know, next year or the year after, or, you know, we see these procurement projects multi-year. They could conceivably go to countries like Slovakia or Poland and say, look, we'll buy your artillery or we'll buy your, your jets and we'll send them to Ukraine. And I think some of that will happen. There will be, will be some purchases on the open market. But again, it's going to take time. So really, you've got to look down you know, the back of the couch and say, well, what have we got here? And the, the military had essentially turned around and said, we have nothing. We can't, there's nothing we've got that we don't need that, that we can send. And I don't think that was the case. I think, as has been proven, because we are now going to send an unspecified number of, uh, of our own artillery, and this is modern gear. This is good stuff, and I'm sure the Ukrainians will be delighted to get this. It's called an M777 uh, cannon. Mm. You know, we did have stuff, and we've now decided we're going to send it. And it would not surprise me if we sent uh, some of the light armor vehicles we've got as well, because the government's been forced, I think, by public opinion and the situation on the ground to do more. Speaking of John Iveson from the National Post, so John, yeah, your columns along these lines that you've just described clearly getting under the skin of Russian officials. They're obviously reading your stuff, and you ended up on this sanction list uh, released by Russia this week. So so the basically, when you're banned and sanctioned like this by Russia, it basically means you are, you are not allowed to travel to Russia, right? Like, are there any other, what what other impacts are there, or is that it? You're just basically not allowed I, to go there. I, I'm going to have to look, look into this, because, I mean, I think that there are, uh, you know, you'd have to be careful about extradition, I guess, if you've got a, a country that's got an extradition agreement with Russia. Um, I mean, would they go that far? Probably not, but um, do you want to take chances about it being ended up in a uh, a Russian jail? No, definitely not. So I, I think for, for people like me, Probably people like you as well, Mike. When when we're traveling abroad now, you kind of look. I, I've I've already done this with China, like you know, written written pretty scathing pieces about condemning China, and it, I did think twice about going somewhere because I saw they had an extradition deal with China. It's not. I don't think it's happened yet. We're not there yet as far as with Russia or with China, but I, I'm sure the day will come when they're they're compiling lists of people who they don't want to be uh, broadcasting. Yeah. You know, does that does it does it worry you at all in any way, or will it will it change the way you approach writing about Russia? No, not at all. Yeah, not at all. I mean, you know, there. I think my I've been writing politics for thirty years, and most of the time, you you say you, I've been telling readers, you know, nothing's black and white. Most things are shades of grey, particularly in politics. Nobody's got all the answers. There's there's very little that's that's uh, good v evil or black and white. This is good v evil. This is black and white. The Ukraine situation, and you know, it's a, it's one of the few cases you could say this is a just war. And so, no, I, I'm going to be even more so as things get because yeah. there's no preordained happy ending in this story. Yeah, good for you, John. Like you also mentioned that you know the the, the ban includes a travel ban. You're not allowed to travel to Russia. But did you mention that it also said in the press release there could be other sanctions later? Is that right? Yeah, it's very. It was very unclear what that means. I mean, maybe that's just a translation. Maybe it means further sanctions on other people, okay. or maybe it means further sanctions on the people who they've just named. It's not not at all clear. But yeah, we will definitely be uh, looking over our shoulders if we're, if we're traveling anywhere near Europe. 
Okay, John, thank you for coming on to talk about it today. I, I, I believe it is a badge of honor for you to be on this list. Thank you for coming on. Thanks a lot, Mike.